0: Hi there. You know what? We're so pleased that so many of you are reaching out, telling us about the benefit of listening to The High Performance Podcast. And the good news is you can now see us live. In 2023, we're going to visit nine cities across the UK. On stage will be listeners, experts, superstars, and of course, our very own Professor Damien Hughes. Tickets are on sale right now at thehighperformancepodcast.com or click the link in the description to this podcast. Can't wait to see you live. Before we start, please be advised that there is some bad language and there are themes of trauma and suicide in this conversation. Hi there, I'm Jake Humphrey and this is High Performance, our conversation for you every single week. This is the podcast that reminds you that it's within your ambition, your purpose, your story. It's all there. We just help unlock it by turning the lived experiences of the planet's highest performers into your life lessons. So, allow myself and Professor Damien Hughes to speak to the greatest leaders, thinkers, entrepreneurs, and in this case, sports stars on the planet, so they can be your teacher. Remember, this podcast is not about high achievement or high success. It's about celebrating the right stuff. And particularly today, it's about high happiness, high self worth, and high self care.
1: Today, The most amazing episode awaits you. I know it's coming. After these big events, I'm going to be down. Most of the times i have suicidal thoughts, which is kind of crazy even to sit here and admit today that after these big events and these these big successes, I'm like proper suicidal for a few days. This is going to sound strange, but I heard a voice again and it said, don't do this. Think about your kids growing up with no dad and you're going to be labelled as a weak piece of shit for taking an easy way out and leaving everybody and abandoning everybody. And that was the moment that I knew I had to go see these doctors straight away, regardless of what anybody thought of me and whatever it was gonna be, I had to go and find my way back to the light. So I started walking and I was scrolling down Instagram as I was walking and I saw a video of Deontay Wilder saying, I saw Tyson Fury recently and he's a mess. He's a fat whatever. And he's never coming back and it's such a travesty that this fight didn't happen. And I was thinking, you know what mate, I'm coming back and I'm knocking you out. (laughs) I know the physical risks, I know the costs, I know everything. However, I can't leave it alone. I'm addicted to fighting. I must be sick in the mind because I love getting punched, I love punching. I don't think I can retire today because I need that Joshua fight. It's the fight that people want to see. I did not want a box. In fact, I don't want to box now. But I'm going to get to that in a minute.
0: So today we welcome Tyson Fury to the High Performance Podcast. And I don't want to say too much before we get going on this. All I want to say is please come to this with an open mind because Tyson is not perfect. Tyson is flawed like we all are. Yet you need to suspend your opinion of this for the next 90 minutes because you are going to hear things you never thought you would. We are not speaking to the Gypsy King. We're speaking to Tyson Fury and he talks about that right at the start of this episode. We are about to bring you the most in-depth and insightful conversation with Tyson Fury that I've ever heard. It's a real insight to the challenges that he faces every single day. His new autobiography is called Gloves Off and that's exactly what he is in this conversation. As we welcome Tyson Fury to the High Performance Podcast.
2: As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B, and advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why, if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to Bluehost.com/slash-wondersuite.
0: Well, as I say, thanks for joining us. What is high performance in your mind, Tyson?
1: High performance to me is high octane, full energy, full attack, victory, and everything that comes with it. That's what high performance is to me.
0: So how do you develop a mindset that allows you to be at that level? And we will talk in depth in this podcast about the fact that it isn't always plain sailing for you. But I think self-belief is probably at the core of your own version of high performance, right?
1: Self-belief? um, From a very, very early age. Now, I want to go quite deep into this so the listeners can sort of get to know how I've become such a high performance fat man. And I would put it down to my mental health, OCD, addictive behavior that I have, obsessive compulsive disorder. So, if you're obsessive about anything, it can be unhealthy. But if you're obsessive about your job, that will equal, usually, success. And I have been, and still am, very obsessive about my job. From a little kid, I've outworked everybody I've ever been with. And for a heavyweight, that takes a lot of doing. Like I'm a man 20 stone, I can, I can outwork people 9 stone featherweights in the gym, which is unhumanly impossible. However, I have managed to do it over the years just with the attitude of no retreat and no surrender and just keep going and pushing yourself. And I have actually found a very comfortable seat in my most uncomfortable areas. And if you can do that, if you can run at the level of finding a comfortable position in your most uncomfortable circumstances, that's where you're going to be successful or successful high performance in your area. And I have found that I can find solace in the hardest, toughest, darkest places. But I've managed to do that from experience and practice. And, you know, I test myself a lot, all the time. I'm always testing. I'm always testing the Gypsy King. Tyson Fury, the man, will test the Gypsy King to the utmost point where... Explain that. So the way I have sort of structured my life in able to cope with stuff like... I have two different very different lives like I have Tyson Fury who I was born and named who is a a husband, a father, a son, a mental health patient, a guy who's interested in boxing, boxing fan, a very flawed character, very flawed, very normal, fat, bald, lazy at times and then I have the Gypsy King who has never ever suffered with any problems, who has never had any complications in his life who is just mental concrete and that person is what i believe unbeatable
3: so tell us about the origins of that then because
1: i'm interested in
3: it's one a couple of areas yeah. one is we know your dad you know he's a very notable figure but the role of your mum never really gets mentioned and i'm interested in that for tyson fury yeah. the, the man but then I'm also interested in when you develop this mask or this cloak of invincibility mm. of the Gypsy King.
1: So if we can take it in turns, talk yeah, yeah, to yeah. us about your mum. So before we start talking about the mother, I just want to go, start going... Th- like, the first book I wrote was called Behind the Mask. In around about 2013, 14, 15, 16, I got lost in between these two characters. Tyson Fury and Gypsy King got entangled... And I couldn't tell them apart. I couldn't live different lives. It was just one life rolled into one. And I knew that that was very unhealthy. And I had to get back to being myself and split these two people. And how did up. that manifest itself? Oh, I don't know. A long time of of doing the same thing and being so super confident. And like I say, these characters have always been separate, and then all of a sudden emerged. What happened then like were you just being I just I just couldn't snap out of character I had to just even at home with Paris even and at the home kids. even behind the scenes anything I just couldn't define the two men it was very very hard for me and I was it was almost like I was lost in in a, a movie script and I couldn't get out of it I had to be this big brash confident outspoken controversial figure all the time And it was unrecognisable for my wife. Like, someone was this this person she knew from being 15, 16 years old to seeing, like, how I'd become this badass character in a movie. And even, like, I'm thinking, like, this is not me, really. And I knew if I was ever going to have a happy life, I had to get back to being the person I was in the beginning and try and separate these two things. And it was pretty difficult.
0: You talk really movingly in the book about this, actually phrase you use, you say, I compartmentalise my mental health, like odd socks being shoved in a drawer. Explain that to us.
1: You just get on with it. I took that responsibility on and it was almost like a manifestation over time and just put it all into practice, put it into play on on a daily basis until it got to the point where I couldn't be myself anymore. I didn't know what was me and what wasn't. I didn't know how I was before. Until I obviously had the mental breakdown and then I finally realised that to try and live at that, that, that pace for, for such a long time is very unhealthy. With every big high, there's always an even bigger low for me. So this character will morph like a Power Ranger or a, an anime character, i will morph into this, this guy and then there's always massive lows afterwards like big depressions and anxiety and everything after these big events. Even now? Even now, yeah. So after the Wembley fight, obviously it was, the higher the highs, the lower the lows will always be for me. But I've figured out how to manage this over time. So what I like to do now is, I know it's coming, after these big events I'm going to be down. Most of the times I have suicidal thoughts, which is kind of crazy even to sit here and admit today that after these big events and these these big successes I'm like, proper suicidal for a few days. What do you so, mean by that? Like uh, uh, like how how seriously are these thoughts? Just like want to die type of thing. But I know from experience now that this is going to move in a few days, a week. I always say to Paris like after these fights just let me have a bit of space. Try not give me too much tasks to do. And I'll be back in a week. I'll be I'll be back to normal in a week or so. And do you stay with the family during I this stay week? Stay with the family. And what I like to do is, I like to get myself straight back to grassroots straight away. Like the day after the fight, I'll go out have a few beers with the boys, type of thing. But I'll be back doing my jobs. Like I'll be back doing the bins and tip runs. And people say, so "Why you?" On? Saturday, yesterday, fighting in London, like, and I'm at the tip the next day on Sunday in Morecambe with loads of rubbish and stuff, and let' get myself straight back to normal stuff, like back Monday morning dropping the kids off and Come picking and dog shit do up off the title? floor and stuff. It, it, it brings me back to normal. It brings me back to normal being, being who I am and who I have to be, a provider, a, a carer, that sort of person.
0: This is such a valuable conversation for us to be having because... People people see the Gypsy King, right? Yeah. Because he's the guy that's on the telly. He's the guy that has the fights. He's the guy in the press conferences. They very rarely see this, which is Tyson Fury, the man talking in this way. And people assume if you're successful, everything's easy. I really want you to, if you can, explain what you've learned about why your brain does this. Because there will be people listening to this who have the same thing, but it scares the life out of them. They haven't learned to deal with it and they may well be on the edge and this may well be the conversation that makes the difference for them. What would you say to those people?
1: The first thing that I would say to anybody is after experiencing all these things, like you can't do on your own. Communication is the key. I was so long I come from a big tough family of all fighters and nobody shows emotion or everyone just like keeps everything to themselves and everything's great and that sort of stuff so I know what it's like not to have anybody to speak to about anything and I know what it's like to be almost ashamed of saying like I'm severely unwell here and I need, need help because needing help for me has been It's almost like, I don't need help from anything, I'm Tyson Fury, I fight my way out of anything. But the sooner I realised that I couldn't do it on my own, the sooner I got back well again. And I think admitting to yourself that you've got a problem, whether you've got an alcohol problem or a drug problem or whatever problem you may have, acceptance is the key. First, you can all see it, but if I don't accept that I've got a problem that needs working out, then I'll be in denial forever. But the sooner I can come to grips and admit to myself that I've got a problem, I can start to recover from it. And my advice to anyone suffering with any sort of mental health or any sort of issue is, get straight to the, seek medical advice immediately. Because the sooner you go and do that, the sooner you figure shit out like that, then the sooner you can get back to what is normal for you. And, and I remember, I, I've been suffering with these mental health problems from being a little boy. All my life, I remember what I now know as anxiety. I didn't know back then when I was kid. What age? Young. Like, ha- ha- small enough to hide in a wardrobe. Five years old, six years old. I'd have these feelings of, like, I'm going to be left behind, but no one We wasn't going anywhere. I didn't understand it. I had no education on mental health and up until a few years ago it wasn't this big open widespread thing throughout the world and there was no world mental health days and there wasn't no it's okay not to be okay and all that it was like no it was all hush hush under the carpet stuff and i didn't i didn't understand like all the way through my life i'd had this down one day up the next up and down up and down up and down anxious 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 but didn't know what it was i suppose that i i learned how to sort of handle it with focusing on a certain goal and the goal i had was an unreachable goal and to give myself this unreachable goal give me focus right beyond the problems that i was going through on a daily basis i i'd always set myself to be heavyweight champion of the world so there's seven billion people in the world so you're a newborn baby what's the odds in becoming this impossible dream and i give myself that dream and focused on it that much I, was, I didn't allow myself to get caught up with all the mental health stuff along the way because I always had Klitschko on my mind. From being 14 years old, Klitschko was World Heavyweight Champion, or right up there, you know what I mean? So I was used to watching him on TV, and always my plan was always to beat Vladimir, and I always thought to myself, whoever beats Vladimir it's gonna become a legend in this game. Such a long reign. So I had a lot of trauma going on in my life, from being that age to becoming champion. I was very close to my uncle, you you died. I was about to fight. I was about to go to a weighing and yeah, we got the news that he died mm. and it was just like, oh my God.
0: He'd injured himself. Hadn't he had an
1: accident? Yeah. Yeah. He had an accident. He, he ended up getting a blood clot in his leg and, and died. Um, he was a diabetic type, type one or two. I can't remember. He died. And at the same time he was in a, in, in a coma, my wife was in um, the hospital, the same, the, the woman's hospital next door have given birth to a a dead child so there was a lot of unhappiness going on in my life then so it was uh, a and I always like put it always to the back of my mind because I was thinking I don't have time now to be upset about this I need to be upset when I beat Klitschko if that makes any sense so there was a lot of trauma and shit that went on that I put to the back of my mind and I was like, can't focus on any of this now. That wasn't the only stuff. There was a lot of other stuff as well that went on. But I was like, no, this is not gonna sink in because I've got Klitschko to beat. And until that day, I will not focus on anything other than beating Klitschko. And it was all a process. Even if I wasn't fighting Klitschko, which I wasn't at that time, I was fighting the final eliminator to fight Klitschko, Chisora too. Yeah. But I was, wasn't thinking about Chazor or any of these other guys. It was always about becoming world heavyweight champion or nothing. And did you ever plan for after beating Klitschko? No, because that was Everest. And I remember just lying there thinking, I hope this isn't a dream. Please don't wake up in a minute. I was just lying there with my eyes open and I couldn't sleep. And I was thinking, like, I, I will be fulfilled if I die in the right now, like. I'm very happy with what I've done and I'm thinking like I don't have any more purpose in my life anymore wow. like I was thinking right I die now, I'm just, that's it I'm happy but at the time I, st- I had two kids my wife just told me the day before she was pregnant with her third child and i just won the world title and everything was hunky-dory but for me it was like that's it, I've achieved my lifelong dream like I'm going to die now, that's it I was 27 for about 16 months, I'd say, there wasn't one day that went by that I didn't want to die or wish death upon myself. I even asked God to kill me. I'm being a religious person as well. Someone who's feared God and, yeah. and had that in my life forever. I'd, I'd pray and say, why have I woke up today?
0: But So here's the question, right? Not having, not having purpose, yeah. we can all understand that. And all of us have had moments in our lives where we feel, yeah, I'm lacking a bit of direction here. That's a long way away from not wanting to be on the, on the earth. What was the reason for for wanting to be dead?
1: Now that is the billion dollar question, my friend. So if I could answer that question, mm. I wouldn't be a boxer. Would I be a multi billionaire? Because if I could pinpoint a moment in everyone's life where that's what went wrong, let's move that, I raise it a little bit, explain it to them, and everything's great now. Yeah. Then it wouldn't be. It, it wouldn't be. But did you know it was issue. irrational? It was. Like I said earlier on, it was this build-up of all these shitty events that went on in my life and everything that I'd been been bottling up over the years. At that moment, everything that I'd put to the back of the queue, I was now thinking about and mourning for and and all that sort of stuff. And I always try to explain it like, if you get a bottle of champagne and shake it up, it's going to explode sooner or later, isn't it? The 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 cork's going to pop off. But I can't really figure out, there wasn't one single moment In my life that made that happen It was years and years and years Of wanting something so much that nothing else mattered And being very very obsessed with this goal And then achieving it And it was like Okay That's it now I'm happy with that But now I'm ready to die I suppose I had that Feeling of when you're an old man And you're retired And you've achieved everything And you're a grandparent Maybe a great grandparent and you're ready to just move on. And I must have had those emotions and feelings because I was really ready to meet my maker. I even had kids. How selfish was I thinking? But I suppose when you're very mentally unwell, you don't think about anything else other than self-destruct and other than yourself because it's a very selfish thing. And no matter what I've tried to think about, like think about my kids, think about my wife, think about everything, it didn't matter to me because a normal straight-thinking person would say, this is madness, you've got all this family going on, even if you don't want to box, forget boxing, live for your family. But someone who's not thinking well can't put that into reason. So how's mental health viewed from the
3: people around you? So you described how growing up people didn't talk about this kind of thing. So when they're hearing you have these conversations and talking about, I'm going to finish, I could die tomorrow if I needed to... How are people around you responding At when that that's time? happening?
1: Yeah. Again, no experience on it. They didn't understand. The r- they wasn't educated on it. They were just like, oh, he's, he's, he's a silly person. He's like wanting attention or he's like, he's got... My dad said to me, well, he's even got... Even in a circle. Yeah, my dad, my brothers, no one understood what I was going through. They didn't know what depression was or... So what were they saying they to you They thought then? depression was this word or, or whatever. They were just saying, man up, pull yourself together, all the shit that you don't want to wear. Yeah. Think about this, you got this going on. My dad said to me, You've got the whole world in your hand and you're still not happy. There's people out there who haven't got bread to eat. And yeah. what was the effect on you when you were hearing that? You're I looking just, round. Yeah, I was thinking like, Why can't I shake this off? Like I should be able to I should be able to blow out my nose, this and I was making myself worse, thinking, Why can't I shift this? Why not? And trying to get rid of it all the time And it just went from bad to worse People will never really understand The extent of how bad I was I was pretty fucked up
0: What do you consider to be the lowest point for you? The lowest
1: point, obviously, is the attempt in suicide
0: But before this That was in the car, was it?
1: Yeah, but before this For quite a long time I was hearing voices in my mind clear as day And that is a frightening experience so tell
3: us about that. What do you mean by that? What, that whose voice was it? I what don't saying know. I to don't you? know whose voice it was,
1: but it was a clear voice. And it would be telling me to kill myself and all sorts. It was like I was possessed by a demon or something, without sounding like a crazy person on, who's someone who's watched a horror movie. It was a terrifying experience, I can tell you that. It was absolutely horrifying. So where were you? I'd be led in my bed and I could hear all these voices and I could hear screams and... All sorts of shite going on. I was like, "Oh my god!" It got to a point where I couldn't go to bed anymore sober, because when I was absolutely steaming, I didn't hear these voices. Right. And during like my my normal moments, sanest moments in life, I I do not fear anything. I don't fear dying. I don't fear anything. Is not a scary thing to me. I don't give a fuck about nothing really. However. At this moment i was scared like a little child i'd be in bed like this all anxious and holding my hands tight and grinding me t- oh i was in a right state and i figured out like if i go and have a few drinks i can just like sort of knock out and go to bed and and not not feel yeah. not hear these voices and not feel anxious
3: and can i ask like were you a boozer before this when you're on the journey
1: up to Clayton? No, no. You'd never you weren't no. a big drinker. Well I had a couple of drinks and that, but I wasn't a big a big drinker. Yeah, yeah. You know. I figured out that that's how to make this problem go away. But after keep doing that for a long period of time, obviously it's a mask. It only masks the problem for a minute. And then you wake up the next day or the week later, and you're even worse a deeper in mm. a darker hole. And at this time I was getting fatter by the day as well. And I believe my a lot of my problems are eating disorders as well. And I'm always ballooning up in weight all the time. If I don't concentrate on it forever, every day, then I'll just get fatter by the day. Even today, like I can go from like 19 stone 10 to, I'd say I'd be 30 stone in one year if I didn't eat, train every day like a lunatic and eat, try, try to eat sensible as well. So I'm getting fatter by the day I'm drinking every day, I'm hearing voices in my mind, I don't want to live anymore and I don't care about anything. I'd say I'm in a dark place. People say to me, oh, you lost 10 stone and you come back. Weight loss is a very easy thing for me. Before I fought Klitschko, I walked into camp at 24 stone, 10 pound. And I fought Klitschko at 18 stone, 3, 12 weeks later. I've always been able to get weight on and off. Can I jump out
3: though, sorry, I don't mean to be rude, but... I'm intrigued, like, you're diagnosing a lot of this stuff now, like eating disorders and some of these mental health issues. But I want to go right back to the start of your journey. You've you've referenced some of the trauma you had, like Huey and Paris having the stillborn baby. What's happened to you in that period that now you can look back and see some of these seeds of dysfunction were starting to be sown? Is, Is there anything you can identify what do you mean, like,
1: the moment that I, I could realise what was going on?
3: Well, just growing up, you know, you're describing that moment of, like, locking yourself in a wardrobe and frightening you're going to get left behind, you know. Yeah, yeah. And so the seeds of these kinds of dysfunctions are often sown in childhood. Something happens to I, us that I causes that.
1: it. I truly believe that all of these, these things start from a childhood. But you tell me what a five or six-year-old, like, I've got a five or six-year-old at home, what has he got to be anxious about? I don't think there was a trigger point, no. Could it be possible that you're born with this and it's developed over time?
0: Like I think so. So I have an anxious daughter and she's nine years old now. And she exactly is your, it's very interesting. You're describing from an adult perspective, knowing it's irrational, people saying you'll be fine making it worse. She's, she, she's exactly the same. We leave the house. And it's a totally irrational fear that we're going out. And then when we say, you'll be fine, she's no, that no, makes me feel worse because I know I'll be fine. But I have this feeling in my stomach, like, I know I'll be fine, Dad, but I'm scared. I'm scared witless because you're leaving the house. And I believe that these are things we're born with. But I also believe, right, that everything has a price. So I think there's a very good case here that without all of the emotional challenges that you've been through, there's no way we're sitting here talking to you now as... The heavyweight champion of the world. I think that you don't I, get I, one I without do, the other I do types. believe,
1: yeah, I do believe you're um, probably correct because everything we have to experience is all a part of our journey, like a jigsaw piece. But I'm just trying to go back now. I'm, I'm searching the mind for traumatic moments as a child. And I can go back to 1997. We had a, a sister born, and my mother had 14 kids, and 10 of them died, and four lived. Fucking hell. Yeah, that's horrific, isn't it? So, imagine, like, but all these ages? miscarriages. Uh, mis- or miscarriages? Yeah, yeah no. no, they just wasn't... Some of them were born. Some of them were still born. And, and these these after
0: you're born? So
1: you're... Like, in between, miss, after, wow. before, all this sort of stuff, yeah. I remember, like, me, that she said, oh, they were all boys. And and she was finally pregnant with her daughter. The, the last one. And this, this daughter was like, ah, oh, we can't wait, we're getting a sister, finally, after all these years. And... Um, so, my mother was, like, fully pregnant, like, heavily, like, nine months ready to... Well, she went into the hospital, she had the baby, and the baby was unwell. It had... She had, like, lung problems and underdeveloped lungs and whatever. And anyway, she ended up living for a few days and and dying. And it was a... It was a horrible sort of experience. So, how old would I have been in 1997? You were born in 88, were you? Yeah. So, you were nine years old. So, nine years old. That's quite a horrific moment, isn't it? But yeah. Yeah, I always remember that. So that might have been a... Could have been a trigger trigger moment in my life, but was that the beginning of it? I don't think so. I remember cool. being in that wardrobe before all this. So maybe that was a an additive to it all as well. Yeah. However, I can't pinpoint accurately what was the event or moment that made this happen.
3: So what are you doing different then with your kids than what maybe you experienced as a child that you think might help them avoid some of these mental health challenges
1: so yeah like with our kids like we've had four miscarriages and we've sort of kept that away from the kids kids don't need to know about all that sort of stuff so if we have a problem like adult problems I I don't let the kids know about it how old's your oldest my oldest she's 13 today
0: happy birthday to her yeah,
1: birthday ha- have birthday. you shared with
0: her, what you're sharing with us, does she know about her dad's struggles? She
1: knows about her dad's struggles, but not. I don't think she really understands in-depth problems. Mm-hmm. So we had this little moment the other night, like I got all my kids in, and me and Paris sat down on the bed, and we asked them, like, do you ever see us arguing, or when was the last time you saw mum and dad fighting? And we were surprised at the results of this. as Venezuela remembered it a time about four or five years ago. And other than that, they couldn't mention anything that they've seen. So which was I was very proud of that moment. That's a very good thing for me, because the last thing that I want my kids to experience is is their parents' problems. Like, all relationships have arguments and ups and downs and backs and forwards. But that should be private from the kids. And was it for you? For me, it wasn't, no. Right. For me as a kid, it was... My dad was up and down it, it was arguments you know what i mean My me dad was a bit of a party animal back in his day bit of a jack the lad boxer up and down jack about town and all that so he'd be going on benders for two days and coming back and my mother would be screaming and you can imagine so i suppose that might have had a, an effect on it all as well and and i just didn't want that for my kids
0: now i know if i'm listening to this conversation i'm thinking well I've just seen Tyson fight recently. I know that there's talk about him carrying on fighting or maybe not carrying on fighting, but he seems okay. Yeah. So we've talked about the darkest moments and you know, you've know, you gone on record as saying that you were in your sports car. Yeah. You looked at a bridge and you thought, I'm going to kill myself. Yeah. What brought you out of it?
1: This is going to sound strange, but I heard a voice again and it said, don't do this. Think about your kids growing up with no dad and you're gonna be labelled as a weak piece of shit for taking an easy way out and leaving everybody and abandoning everybody. And I heard it say, pull over. And I pulled over and at that time, my heart was beating out of my body. I was in the zone, the death zone. And I I feel all the tears coming down and I was was hyperventilating everything. And that was the moment that I knew I had to go see these doctors straight away, regardless of what anybody thought of me and whatever it was gonna be, I had to go and find my way back. To, to the light. And how scary was going to seek help? It was pretty scary. Not as scary as heading towards that bridge, 180 miles an hour. However, it was pretty scary because this was gonna be the first time that I was gonna go seek medical advice and tell some strange man, who in my f- mind at the time, was just gonna go and tell his mates in the pub later, ah, just thought every champion of the world is the right pussy. Just told me all these problems, having a few beers. Not thinking this man's a professional doctor, private confidentiality. Like, this is how irrational I was thinking. I was thinking, this doctor's going to go out of his pals later and divulge all my private business. So I'm thinking, this is going to be crazy. So I just thought, you know what? I don't give a fuck what he's going to do. I'm going to go there. I've done some research about places to go and people to see. And I started going to these... I don't know if they call them psychiatrists, That's yep. American, is it? Or no, no, psychologists no. or whatever? Psychiatrists. Yeah. There. And me dad went with me, My brother Shane went with me, My little brother you went with me. At the time, after this car situation, my dad and my brothers were living with me in my house in Morgan, in Lancaster, because they thought, like, he's going to do something bad to himself. And a little bit before this, first time ever I had this anxiety attack and a panic attack at the same time. And I 100% thought I was going to die that day. Before the everything else, this was a day that I was going to die for sure. Like, I, I thought I was having a heart attack. Where were you? I was, I went out with my mate Dave all day. We're just doing normal jobs. Because at this time, like, I wasn't boxing. I was fat as anything. I was, I was unwell. So my mate Dave had come down and, and take me out for the day. And just like he, he does, like... Uh, windows and doors and conservatories and stuff. And we just drive around and like, he'd go like giving his uh, quotations and stuff and seeing the customers and whatever. And I'd just go around for the for the banter with him for the day. And I remember we went out and I dropped him back off at ease and Paris had phoned me and said, right, you tease five minutes away. So I said, oh my only auntie mate Dave's, it was only, he lives two miles from mine. And as I left him, this is gonna sound crazy, the whole world went into Postman Pat. Like a cartoon. Right. And I was thinking, what the fuck is this? Like, I was thinking, I can't make it back home. I'm not going to make this home. And like, everything was like in cartoon type right. world. Yeah. And I was thinking, wow. I've got to pull over. I can't see. And then my, my, mind, my eye vision went to like, looking through a tube. I was in, a, in the car and I pulled it over and I, right in the middle of the road there it was a big high kerb like that. And I tried pulling a bang hit this big high kerb. And I thought, I can't pull over here. I've got to pull over a bit further. So I got, got past the, like the McDonald's, there, drove past, pulled into the first lay-by. I remember pulling up handbrake up, jumping out the car and throwing the keys down the road. i like, I set off running. I'm like, what the fuck is going on? And I'm thinking, what the fuck are you doing? Go get your keys. You've left your keys in the middle of the road. Ran back, got the keys. And then I'm running down the road again and I can feel my heart like I've had a heart mm. attack. I've had a stroke. My eye, my vision's gone. I can't breathe. I'm dying. And I'm thinking, I'm walking down, I'm, I'm, I'm literally waiting to die and I'm calling to God and I said, please God forgive me of my sins. Like I'm thinking like I'm about to meet my maker this was it, like, this was it. There's no coming back. This is it. I'm dying. And at that moment, after I'd said down prayers, like, forgive me of for these sins, I was about to to put dead. Yeah. After that moment, the only thing I thought about was my kids. Yeah. There was no like life flashing before me, and I saw all my childhood and all that shite. This was like imminent death. 100% I'm going to die. And the only thing I thought about before death was how my kids are going to survive on their own. And I've really fucked things up. And I'm thinking, why have I not died? I'm having a heart attack, but I'm not dying. And I said to people walking down the street, I am having a heart attack. Please call an ambulance. This is really obvious. I swear to God, this is the truth. You were in such a... This is a real mental health crisis. This is, this is a breakdown. This is an, yes. a... But at the time, I'm, I'm having a heart attack. Yeah, I've gone yeah, blind. Yeah. I can't see hardly. I phoned Dave. I said, Dave, come and get me quick. I'm having a heart attack. And you'd had a good day with him. You'd had yeah, like a normal, normal day. Yeah, normal day. Like, normal so he he come in the car, but I'd already flagged the van down. <laughs> and I said to the guy, the driver, please take me to the hospital, I'm having a heart attack. So jumps in this builder's van, he's like, what the fuck's going on, mate? I'm taking you to the hospital. I said, whoa, whoa there's me, mate, I'm jumping out with him. Jumped out of that van, got in his van. <laughs> and I'm thinking, he knew what was going on, because he knew, he knew about panic attacks and stuff. Dave. Dave, yeah. And he said to me, calm down, you're having a panic attack. And he was driving slow. And I said, why the fuck are you driving slow? I'm having a heart attack. You silly bastard, get to the fucking hospital. <laughs> He's like, you're not having a heart attack. You're having a panic attack. I said, I'm going to knock you spark out driving this wheel. I said, get me to the fucking hospital. I said, if I, I said, you're my best mate. I said, if you tell me you're having a heart attack, I'm going to get you straight there. He's doing 30 miles an hour. He goes, you don't need hospital. You need to go for a walk. Which is not what you want to hear. And I'm like, okay, this is it then. You're involved in this plot to kill me too then, are you?
0: Oh, wow, you went there. So
1: yeah. then I'm thinking, yeah. right, this is my best mate in the world. has been my best mate for the last 10 years uh, before this as well. Yep. Now I'm thinking, right, this is the plot now. He's trying to kill me. So I was thinking, right, he's going to pull this fan up. I'm just going to have to knock him out cold and I'm going to have to run away because he's obviously trying to kill me. He's going to try and push me in a river or when he takes me on this walk... He's going to try and do me. So I'm thinking all these things. I said, Dave, I said, Did you know if you try anything out on me, I said, I'm going to do you. He's like, what are you talking about? I said, I've told you to take me to the hospital and you want to take me on a walk. I said, you are trying to kill me. And he's like, right, I'm taking you to the hospital. Anyway, he's putting the radio on. I'm thinking I can hear voices in the radio speaking to me. Oh, wow. I was like proper gone. I got to the hospital. And I ran into the hospital and I said to the people, I said, check me out. I said, someone's drugged me or I've had a heart attack. I said, right, check me blood now. I said, I might have anthrax in my system. I said, this is what I'm thinking, all these crazy things.
3: See, I'm struck when you describe it as crazy, because that to me, as you describe it, is just somebody seriously unwell. Yeah. You know, like you wouldn't describe somebody with cancer as being
1: crazy. Do you know what I mean? Like, you've I'm got telling you, this was the most terrifying experience yeah. that I've ever, ever experienced. I've run into a hospital full of people, the heavyweight champion of the world. People know, everybody knows me in the room. I'm like asking them to check my system because I, I think I've ever had an heart attack or I've been drugged, seriously drugged because it, nothing made sense. It was so irrational. Yeah, yeah. Erratic. I didn't know what was going on.
3: And this all happened before you then had the incident where you considered driving into the bridge?
1: Around about the same kind of time, yeah.
3: But this is before, help. Actually, this is before you've sought help. No.
0: And it,
1: this is oh, really? after that bridge really? moment, I believe. Right. Yeah. yeah. But before say, you've
0: gone to yeah, ask for help, yeah.
1: Yeah. This is after that bridge moment. The doctor said, sit down, check my blood, checked everything, heart monitors on, EG, whatever they are, all over me. He said, You've not had a heart attack, you're totally fine. There's no drugs in your system, but you need to calm down. My heartbeat was going bop, 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 like three hundred something a minute. And he said, If you're gonna if you don't calm down, you are gonna have a heart attack. So anyway, they give me these pills to take. Calm down, you're totally fine. And the doctor, head doctor come in and spoke to me. He said like, have you got a lot of stress going on in your life? I said, yeah. This, that and the other, loads of things going on. At the time it was like, I was supposed to be preparing for Vladimir Klitschko rematch. Imagine going in the ring with him after this. Wallace is all going on. They're trying to take my belts off me. They want me to fight and I'm trying barely to fight to survive to live. I've got my managers and all that, yeah, people around me, trying to get me to go back fighting, and I'm I'm trying to fight to breathe fresh air, here. and so I had a lot of stuff going on. I had court cases going on, people trying to sue me because I'm out the ring and I'm not fighting. And the doctor said, look, prescribe me with these medications, and I've always been against like taking medication and stuff like. And anyway, they give me this bag full of pills, and anyway, went back to the house and I said to me dad, look, I still wasn't I wasn't right. I said someone's tried to kill me today. I said, I've heard all voices in the radio. My dad's like, oh my God. He's, he's, he's concentrating on what I'm saying, but obviously he thinks... Scary for them as well. Mate. It's scary for them, yeah. And we all sat downstairs in my front room on the floor. This is how scam. Heavyweight champion of the world, 27 years old. And I'm sleeping downstairs in my house with my dad and my brothers because I'm absolutely terrified. I'd go to all the windows and doors and check them all, bolter everything and barricade all the door. I, I don't know, maybe I said, why are you doing this? Like, who are you afraid of? Who's coming? he was like thinking someone might be coming for him. But As even I there when know. you're describing it, like
3: like the fact that you repeated and said I was the heavyweight champion of the world, and you go, that's the gypsy king talking. Yeah. You're actually a 27-year-old, seriously Ill unwell person.
1: person that, yeah. But so at this time, I'm still don't know what's going on. I think I'm having a heart attack, a stroke. I was in a severely, very bad part of my life. And the last thing on my mind was boxing or anything like that. And from then it was like, I need to see some doctors if they're gonna have, I'm gonna have to go on medication. I'm gonna have to do it. Whatever's gonna be the remedy for this, I have
3: to do. Tell but- us about that moment of surrender then when you've decided you've hit rock bottom and you know that you need, you need help. You can't do it on your own. You're not Superman.
1: Tell yeah. us about that moment when you go. Like what did you ask for? How I just wanted I just wanted knowledge. I started researching on the internet, I started watching videos. I I spoke to some um quite a few people, doctors, psychiatrists, all these people. And like I said, the first day I went there with my dad and my brothers. And I was thinking to myself, this is not going to be for me, this telling this man all my problems. me, me my dad's there listening to me as well. And I'm, I'm like Why this, did you feel the need to go with them as opposed to going on your own? I just felt like I didn't know what, what to expect. And like, they wasn't going to leave me. It was just like, this was a problem. Like, something's going to happen with him. I imagine how scared they was. Like, having the responsibility of having this giant person who's very unwell and about to do some damage to himself. So I went there and that sort of explained over a period of time that a normal person's life might be like this on a graph but your life is like this and anyway after speaking to him and, and going back and forth, after the first day i was like I'm probably not going to go back there but by the time friday was coming i was like can't wait to go back here now I'm looking forward to this it was like i was going on holiday or something
3: and what was it that was happening in those meetings that that
1: moved you to that place it was just I suppose the education of what was going on and they explained to me what was happening. And it was so refreshing to know that I wasn't on my own out there and this wasn't some disease that only I had. Yeah. And that it was controllable because I thought I was only on my way to a padded room and nothing else ever was ever going to happen to me. It was the most terrifying, frightening experience that I've ever had in my life. And I hope to God I never have to go back there. At the same time, I went and we seeked out the best psychologist in this country. Yep. She did an assessment on me. She had a big file of papers like that. And we spent like two hours in a room. She was asking me questions, ticking, marking, all the sort of stuff. And when it had finished, she said, oh, that's done now, Tyson. Can I have a word with you, John? And she said to me dad, he is very high suicide risk. And she said, because he's got faith in God, if he didn't have that, he would have killed himself already. And he needs watching at all times, type of thing. So can you imagine my dad hearing that? He? And in that a couple of days goes by and we get this like report back and everything, doing all the tests on me and all sort of stuff, and I come back with bipolar disorder. Um, anxiety, paranoia, or there was a load of other things, OCD. um, Was it good for you for the first time in your whole life? To have clarity. For someone to say, this is what you've got. This is it. Like, these are going to be your medication forever type of thing. I was thinking, I also could think of was my granddad who had to take these blue pills every day forever. And I'm thinking, I'm fucking fucked here. I don't know what's going to happen. I'm going to be drooling at the mouth in a rocking chair back and forward. And anyway, that wasn't the turning point for me. This is going to sound mad. But after all this, even seeing these doctors going and being assessed by the leading person in the country and downloading all the information in my mind and all that, I suppose the turning point was I went out. After all this, I still decided to go out because I wasn't right still was very unwell and I I went out for beers because believe it or not every time I'd had four or five pints I didn't have any problems there was no ailments I was I felt fine I didn't have any mental health I didn't have depression and I wasn't anxious so I'm not feeling good I'm going to go out I'm going to have a few beers I'm going to come back and get to bed how soon is this after this diagnosis in Goodwood this was like I suppose the Goodwood would have been earlier on, um, like late, maybe September, August, September. And this night, it was Halloween night, 2017. Right. 31st of October. I goes out here in Lancaster, and there's the Yates's it was, not Yates's anymore. And I went out dressed as a skeleton glow in the dark, because I was embarrassed. I had a full face mask on. As if people wasn't going to know it was me, seven-foot guy walking <laughs> around Morecambe <laughs> walk in a skeleton <laughs> awesome. suit, yeah. But I was embarrassed. I wouldn't take my mask off. I was drinking it through a mask This beer. And I looked around myself and I saw all these young people at the beginning of their life, because Lancaster's a university town and all these students all dressed up as, as whatever they was, uh, fancy dress. And I had this moment, I only had this much off the top of a pint and I had this moment of clarity and sanity and everything was like so crystal clear to me. It's like I'd been asleep and I'd woke up and I said, what the fuck are you doing here with all these kids? I'd probably only been 28 myself at the time. You've had the world in your hands, you prick. And now you've chucked it all away to come and drink a beer in Yates's in Morecambe, Lancaster. Go home right now, put the pint of beer down straight home comes in about nine o'clock Paris was thinking he's going to go out all night ain't coming back type of thing so I shut the door and she said who's that I said it's me went upstairs took my skeleton suit off I remember getting down on my knees praying to God I remember reading George Foreman's autobiography years ago oh yeah and he said in it like when his nephew got diagnosed ill with illness he got down on his knees and he prayed to God and it helped it worked So I thought, I'm going to do that. I've always been a believer in Christianity and stuff like that. I've always practised it and always followed it and all that sort of stuff. And any tiny time trouble would happen, I'd always turn to God for help. And I I remember getting upstairs, I was in my underpants, fat as fuck, 28 stone plus. And I remember calling out to God. I was crying again. I'm, I'm a proper crier. I could feel all my chest all wet. And I felt like I was down there for an eternity, but I probably wasn't. I was probably only down there for like 10 minutes. And I got up to my feet and I just felt like a welterweight. I felt like I was 10 stone in weight. I felt like the weight of the world was lifted off my shoulders. And for the first time in nearly three years, I knew what I was going to do. And I called out to Paris like a child at Christmas. Paris! She said, what? What? I said, tomorrow we start the regain mission. And she wasn't. She didn't believe me because I'd talked about this every time I'd had a few beers. I'm going to come back and be heavyweight champion of the world because I wasn't unwell when I had a few beers. I was totally fine, just drunk. But this time I wasn't drunk and I meant it and I knew that all the obstacles in my life were about to be moved. I remember saying to God, I said, if there's a way back to boxing for me this is where I want to be I want to come back to boxing if there's any possible way that you can bring me back to boxing that's where I want to be and at that time I was 10 nil down before kickoff I had a a drug case going on with UCAD I had no license from the boxing of control I'm, I'm deemed medically unfit by the leading woman in the country 28 stone in weight hearing voices in my mind still at that moment that time yeah and couldn't sleep at night without the lights on in the bedroom even then even then but i woke after that day after that moment i knew that all my obstacles were going to be moved and paris said you couldn't box even if you wanted to even if he was 18 stone right now you couldn't box There's too much going on. I said, everything's going to be all right. Don't worry. I'm going to become World Heavyweight Champion again. The next day, I get my sweatsuit on and I was going to go for a run down the canal near mine. Obviously, I couldn't run. I was too heavy. I didn't know that at the time. And I couldn't run half a mile. So I started walking and I was scrolling down Instagram as I was walking and I saw a video of Deontay Wilder saying, I saw Tyson Fury recently and he's a mess, he's a fat whatever, and he's never coming back, and it's such a travesty that this fight didn't happen. I was thinking, you know what, mate? I'm coming back, and I'm knocking you out. (laughs) And I remember calling Ben Davison on that day, because I'd worked with Ben earlier on before the panic attack for one of Billy Joe's fights in Spain. And I called Ben, and I said, Ben, I want you to train me. And I'm going to come back and I'm I'm going to get my license and I'm going to everything's going to be all right. And he was like, you've got all this going on in your life, like probably not a good time. I said, I promise you, it's all going to go away quite quickly and everything's going to be all right. And I'm going to get back and I'm going to get back boxing. And I did. Yeah.
2: As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. Hey, look, as you know, in high performance, we love to highlight businesses doing things
0: a better way. That's why we're proud to partner today with Mint Mobile. And when I found Mint Mobile, I had to share it with you. They've ditched retail stores and all the overhead costs and passed those savings onto you. Right now, Mint Mobile has wireless plans starting at $15 a month. That's unlimited talk and text plus data for $15 a month. And for me, those numbers are fantastic. I've been paying way more than that for my whole life. So if you hate your phone bill, Mint Mobile can offer you premium wireless for just 15 bucks a month. All the plans come with unlimited talk and text and high speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can choose from three, six or 12 month plans. Say goodbye to your monthly phone bills. So to get your wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com HPP. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash HPP. Additional taxes, fees and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Today's episode of High Performance is in partnership with MindLift and many of you may have heard already that in 2023, I decided to give MindLift a go, the neuroscience-based personalised brain trainer to improve your focus and your relaxation. So I popped on the headband, I downloaded the MindLift app and connected to my own Personal neuro coach, and look, because of my job as a podcaster, I get to experience so many different things that people tell me are going to benefit my life. And in all honesty, once I started using Mindlift, I just found that I felt sharper, my focus was better, and I think something else that you can't necessarily feel is that it offers an improvement for overall brain health. I also was really reassured by the fact that this is trusted by clinicians around the world. I know for a fact it's used by top athletes. I've spoken to some of them about how much they love it. And the fact that the whole experience is customised by your own neuro coach, I think just makes it really smart. So if you want to get involved and you're interested, now is the time with a $40 discount exclusively for you. And if you want to get $40 off your first subscription, just go to mindlift.com slash highperformance. That's M-Y-N-D-L-I-F-T dot com slash highperformance.
3: Now, can I ask you... Here, because I'm, I, I see your career in two parts the first part before the sec- you've had this. I, I do as well and then the second one two careers you've described how on that first career you were obsessive about becoming the heavyweight champion of the world and you almost ignored all these mental health challenges and all yeah. the other stuff that eventually caused this crash yeah. so you've had this sense of mission to get there and yet it's the same sense of mission that you're now deciding is going to lift you out of the yeah. dark place you're in yeah what were you doing differently on the second mission then that was going to
1: avoid the same crash? I felt like I had the experience and the know-how to overcome the challenges. And this is going to sound strange, as if this full interview hasn't already. While I was preparing to fight Sephir Seferi, I've sort of skipped a little bit anyway. The boxing board of control before this, they said to me, right, you want to come back? Great if you can get made medically fit again by the same person who wrote you off before, we'll give you a license, but they were thinking never in a million years. Mm. So I had to get all that, the court case went away. They decided they wasn't gonna fulfill it any longer. And so overnight, bang, within a week, no court case, went and saw the psychiatrist person again, and I was totally fine, stamped approved. Right. The Boxing border Control revoked, reinstated my license then I also needed to do was lose some weight. So in a short space of time, I'd gone from having no hope at all to being just fat and mentally unwell still. And skipping forward again, back to the Seferi fight, I was still very unwell, but I knew I had a mission to do. And I knew that the only way back to happiness for me was through training and boxing. And the more I trained, the better I felt. And every day that went by was, I was going to get better and better and better. And... I'd have very good days and very, very bad days. And I remember saying, like, we need to go over somewhere where it's got sunshine because sunshine makes you feel happy. And being in Morecambe in the winter is sad. Paris was pregnant with our... I just count how many kids we've got. I like, think she was pregnant with our <laughs> fourth child, Valencia. And she was born on the 4th of December. We'd been training in Morecambe for about a month, I'd say then obviously Paris is going to have their baby and we said right as soon as she has the baby Christmas out of the way we'll go to Spain training where a will get a bit of sun on us and that will help with weight loss positivity everything so we had the baby three or four days later we're all in the car on the way to Spain Paris as well Paris as well with the baby the full family's going my brother is coming with his new wife my mate Matthew James has come with his full family. My mate Dave and his full family. We've got a right team all coming to support this bit of training camp. Yeah, lovely. But I was still 26 stone 10 because I'd not lost that much weight. I've had Christmas. I've had shit. I had a lot of weight to shift. And we went over to Spain. We got there on 27th of December and we started camp. I lost so much weight. I lost, like, just under five stone in... A few months of being over there, but on the way there, it was so hard because I wanted to quit so many times. I sat, I'd phone them and say, right, pull off here now, boys. Let's just go to Disneyland. I'll pay you for what you've done. And I, this ain't for me. I don't want to box. Like, I can't do this. I knew what was coming, the hard journey. So why did you then? That I had. So why did you it carry He just kept on? talking me into it, like, once you get there, it's going to be alright, and you're going to train, and everything's going to be better again, and it was a team effort, a real team effort, like, I remember Ben saying to people, like, if I could just came to Spain, we're going to get there, but where we get, I must have phoned up ten times on the way there, to say, let's turn back, I, I can't be bothered but as soon as I saw the sunshine come up like I got down right to the south of Spain and I saw it coming up the sunshine I was like I'm happy I followed him up right we're going to do this guys they're like oh my god this guy's a lunatic so he gets there and every day I'm happy sad happy sad perseverance perseverance and I'm thinking right am just going to get through the day one day at a time one day at a time one day at a time and I'm seeing the scale come down come down and the whole time I was I was training for that fight I was sleeping with the lights on Still anxious. Were you Up taking medication? No. You No weren't. medication. Medication was training at this moment. Right. And eating well, training, drinking plenty of water and vitamins and all that. And I started to feel better and better. Every day that went by, I felt better and better and better. Um, and it come, I, I think it was like the end of December until the 15th of June. I'd lost all the weight. I was back down to like 19 stone odd and i was having my first fight back in manchester in 30 31 months or something like that it was a long long period of time and i remember thinking right this career is going to be so much different to before i'm going to enjoy it before it wasn't enjoyable like pre klitschko it was wasn't an enjoyable career it was just so much pressure on me to deliver what I was saying, become heavyweight champion of the world, everyone's looking up to me, weight of the world on my shoulders, I'm carrying it for everybody. And it was just so much pressure. And it wasn't enjoyable, it was it was horrible. Climb, elevate to the top. Yeah. But for the second career, I've got a new trainer, who's young. I've got a new team. Everyone's on the same... It's not like, slog, 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 it's about being happy and and everyone's laughing and it's so good and camps and stuff and I'm going to take every moment in and I'm going to enjoy every single minute of it and I have done it's almost like that that. first
0: career was all about the outcome it was all about the Klitschko fight it was all about scaling the mountain and maybe you've now realised particularly after the journey you've been through and the things you've experienced that It isn't about the outcome, it isn't about the destination, it is about the process, it's about the journey. The journey. This is it, like this is what it's, what life is, us sitting here having this conversation, this is all
1: part of... The journey is the best thing. Have you ever like been on a road trip, on the way there, it's fantastic, when you get there, Mm. you're there and you know you're coming back and on the way back, it's terrible, isn't it? Yeah. It's all about the journey. Also, who is more
0: likely to get to the destination? The person who loves the journey and loves what they're doing, or the person who's only fixated on that moment in the distance? Of course the person that loves the journey
1: completes the journey. Don't know. I have to disagree there. Do you think? Because I think something's only achievable if you've got a destination target. Like if you're just going along for the buzz and like, oh, whatever happens, happens in my life. I think it's very hard to hit something target. But the danger is if you don't, you did get the target, you got the Klitschko fight. Yeah. The risk is if you,
0: for someone that doesn't get what they want to get, if they also don't enjoy the journey and the view isn't worth the climb, like what are you left with then?
1: Well... The way I like to explain this is, first of all, you've got to figure out what you want. If you know what you want, no matter how far you are away from this target, eventually you're going to hit this target or you're going to get very close to it. So what's your target now? My target now is to enjoy every every single day that comes. Like, I don't have a target anymore. Like, I've done everything I wanted to do in my life times a million.
0: And does that worry you? Because that was no. part of the source of your mental health struggles.
1: Yeah. So now I'm fixated, I'm fascinated on taking one day at a time and living every moment. Because I know once I walk out of that door, this moment's gone forever. And I've actually grew an obsession with time and owning it and living it and, and being very, very, very in this moment. Because I know I've lived a lot of my life focusing on a future event. And I know I've missed out on a lot of stuff that was happening that was a reality that I had no interest in, I didn't pay any attention to, because I was only fascinated, fixated on Klitschko and beating him, becoming heavyweight champion. Since then, it's all about living in this moment for me. The journey. Yeah, and being in, being here right now. I'm not thinking about going to the gym in a bit. I'm not thinking about what's going to happen next week or going on holiday next year or Christmas. I'm thinking about what I'm doing right now and I'm enjoying it. And that's how I live my life now. Short-term goals, no matter what it is, how small they are or how big they are. So how do you set your day up now then? Talk us through a typical day now for Tyson. So I have a very structured routine life and I find that works for me being a, a mental health patient. And when I've got nothing to do, no targets, no short-term goals, no nothing, it's like pissing in the wind for me. It's a disastrous moment. So I know every single day I'm getting up at 6 o'clock in the morning. I'm going to get showered and messed around, do all that sort of stuff. I'm getting the kids up out of bed, I'm taking them to school. I'm going to feed the dog, take him for a walk. After the school, I'm going to go for a run down the promenade 3 or 4 miles i'm gonna come back i'm gonna have some breakfast i'm gonna do me daily jobs whether it's taking the bins or paying some bills or tidying up or doing some weeding whatever i'm doing and then i'm gonna pick the kids up from school and then i'm gonna to go to the gym at four o'clock i'm gonna train for maybe an hour and a half two hours come back shower up get me tea relax get to bed early nine o'clock half nine i'm out cold that's every day and then weekends i'll do the training alternate trainings and stuff like that on the the other days to tuesday wednesday but it's very routine mundane lifestyle and on the weekend saturday i'll do a nice long run in the morning six mile or maybe a hill run or something and then i'll 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 take the family out have something to eat or whatever and then sunday is a horrible day for me i have no routine on a sunday and it's me day off of eating right and all that so i can basically eat what i want and we, we like to go out for a Sunday dinner or or go to church. But after that after that one o'clock-ish, two o'clock time, it's very boring for me. And I cannot wait to get back to that millstone on Monday morning. And my dad says to me the other day, he's like, after everything you've achieved in your life and everything you could do in your life and how hard you've worked... The only thing you like to do is stay here in Morecambe and train, 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 train and do the same thing every day. I said, yes. That's exactly what I love to do. Because it makes you happy. Because it makes me happy. And you know when I have to go out of my comfort zone, like going going somewhere or doing a tour or going going away from Morecambe, it takes me out of my routine. Me training twice a day, me eating the same things, going to the same places. I'm like um, the Truman Show. Everything's the same because I know... What the other side's like, so I know if I have fillet steak every day and go out for cocktails, how long is that going to last before I'm absolutely sick and suicidal of it? Yeah. People say, "Oh, if I won the lottery, I'd do this and do that," but they don't think of the consequences that it's all going to take, the effect it's going to have on the individual, and the effects are shocking. How long can you go on a holiday for an all-inclusive holiday until you're absolutely sick of looking at it? Me, two days and I can't wait to get out of there. But some people might be able to do it for a week, two weeks even. But imagine be, having nothing to do in your life and just doing that every single day. Like, I have to live routine. It brings happiness. And I don't know how long my body will be able to put up with the wear and tear. Like, I sit here today as a battered person to bits. I've had operation elbows, <sighs> My joints are wore out with all the training over the years and a heavyweight battering the roads and punching things to pieces and all the fights I've had and all the sparring and all the camps and everything. But I know that I have to continue. I have to continue. Because the day I stop training the day I die. See, but that's where for me like there's
3: warning lights here, Tyson. That you've been around it like I have. You've seen loads of lads that have said, "Oh, when I get out, that's me." done. I'm never going to look back. I've just experienced it recently. Yeah. And how many do you get that then get tempted when the you know when the when the spotlight moves to somebody else, when the the circus moves to a new town, and you're stuck in that routine, and you're thinking, "I could do one more fight. I've well, got one more person taking me on."
1: How are you going to avoid that? Well, I, I've obviously failed drastically. Because I retired back in April and I would have passed any polygraph test in the world, any lie detector. I wholeheartedly meant it. So this wasn't another no gypsy king no stunt. This was a genuine This was genuine. Hand on heart, swear to God in Jesus' name, I meant retirement. I did not want a box. In fact I don't want a box now. But I'm gonna get to that in a minute. I did not want to fight on anymore. Like I wanted to retire after Wilder three. Coming out of that ring and fe- feeling like I was going to have a brain injury, had lumps on the side of my head like fists. Memory said, loss, you had didn't you? Memory loss, couldn't remember anything. Didn't know really? how many times I've been down. Didn't know. I Is knew that it was the first time that's happened. Yeah. Didn't know where I was. Yeah. I was in Vegas. I didn't know what hotel I was in. Didn't know where I was staying. Nothing. And then. I said to Paris, like, this is it, babe, no more, and I won't put you through this. I'm looking outside the ring am my wife looks like she's going to have an heart attack. My brothers are like, oh. you know, just everyone's terrified, like going on the floor, getting up all these things, getting battered to fuck. You just never know what's going to happen. Yeah. And I said, like, right, that's it now. She said, thank God for that. I'm very, very happy that this is done. And I meant it then as well. And I got back home, and I thought to myself, like, after a week of contemplating this, and, it's in and I said, I've got to fight again, Paris. She said, why? I said, because I owe it to the fans in the UK to fight back home. I've been away since 2018. All these people have traveled to Las Vegas and watched a pay-per-view at five o'clock in the morning. Wouldn't it be nice, I said, to have one more fight back at home and give everybody an opportunity to come and see it live one more time. She said, if this is going to be the last one, I said, I promise you, babe, this is the last one, no more. So I called at Frank, Frank Warren that is. And I said, Frank, uh, I know you're going to wait me for this, but like, I want to fight again. So, anyway, we sort out a deal with the uh, the mandatory Dylan White, and anyway, it went on to be the biggest biggest boxing event in, in history in this country 94,000 people. And that was it. Farewell, goodbye forever. Adele, and this also, is the end.
0: The punch that finished that fight it was with two spinning out on it, but 94,000 at Wembley. It was an
1: epic moment to go. Why not stop then? Well, this I'm going to get to that now. Well, can I just jump in? Go on. Like I don't
3: believe, you, With all due respect, when you tell me about the about, I want to do it for the fans. In your world, you've got to tighten the circle who you listen to. The fans are nice, and it's nice to play the game of engaging with the fans and things like that. But that
1: wasn't the real reason. I'm, I'm struggling that was to. One hundred percent the reason. Because when you go out that door and walk down the street with me, and you have got people crying their eyes out suffering with mental health problems and all this stuff that's going on right Right. and they look at me like a hero i'm a shining light to them and like i say these people spend hard-earned money traveling across the atlantic ocean to las vegas and waiting up all night to see me fight in america why not owe it to the fans and give them what they want one last time why don't you let them just come in for free then and do it that way because i would do that i've offered to fight joshua for free and i swear to god in jesus name i'd do it but you've got promoters and everybody else around you that are not willing to do that. So that's why. However, th- that is the only reason I came back. I text Mauricio Suleiman, the head of the WBC. <laughs> he must have eight messages from me, retirement messages. Like I had no intention of ever fighting again. So why am I back? So I thought to myself, I've been away a long time and missed a lot of my kids growing up. I thought, I'm going to spend time with my kids. I'm going to be happy driving around Morecambe. I'm going to be very happy going to my gym, doing a bit of training. And I just want to live a normal life. I just want to be left alone. And that lasted, I'd say, for about two months. And then I started thinking, I need boxing. I need that fight. I'm going to the gym twice a day, training anyway. Running in the morning, boxing at night, and weights next morning boxing at night trying to keep my weight down trying to keep positive positive. and how long of that are you going to do before you're ready to fight again i'm seeing joseph parker in my gym everyone's gearing up for big fights and it's like i have an addiction and i'm clearly addicted to boxing and i can't let it go and i always said to myself like how do these greats come back and end up losing five six ten fights at the end of the career why didn't they just walk away Mm. Now I know why. Because you can't walk away. You know the cost, though. I know the physical risks. I know the costs. I know everything. However, I can't leave it alone. I'm addicted to fighting. And it's not even about anything now. It's not about titles. It's not about achievements. It's not about goals. Money. Thank God I've worked hard enough and I'm in a position where money is not an object anymore. I must be... Sick in the mind because I love getting punched. I love punching.
3: Because the image I've got in my head is is Muhammad Ali fighting Larry Holmes when yeah. he's taking diet pills, and yeah. and it was tragic, wasn't it? Or oh, Trevor Burbick in that car park in Bermuda, you know, that last fight. Yeah. A couple of questions for you. How do you reconcile that eventually, Father Time is going to beat you. It won't be an opponent, and yeah. and. Why don't you use... A bit some of common of the, sense.
1: No, no. On history. No,
3: no, but not common sense. But <laughs> I, I'm asking you, why don't you use the same methods that you did to get over your mental health challenges that you're still doing... I've tried. ...to
1: help with the addiction to boxing? I can't let it... It, can't, it won't go away from me. I've literally tried everything. I've took up golf. I've took up clay pigeon shooting. I've took up four-wheel driving. I've took up buying and selling properties... I, I, I'm addicted to buying and selling cars. I've always done it all my life. My,
0: the problem is, though, I, you know, I, I get the sense you're trying to replace the thrill with another thrill. It's almost like you have to take steps to accept you have to live without so, the thrill.
1: Yeah. And um, how it's all started is like, oh, right, I don't want to box because I know the consequences, but then, all right, I'll do some exhibitions. But it's all just leading back to the fight game. You know what I mean? I just... I, I've literally tried everything, I've vacated my belts, i told the promoters, please leave me alone, I don't want to fight anymore, and then the next day I'm like, no, I want to fight. No I don't, yes I do, no I don't, yes I do, but I know that I need this and I'm going to get to that, why? I went to Iceland recently, a few months ago, before the Joshua Rusek fight, all for a bit of banter with the film crew and to call out Thor and have a big old bit of a scrap in the ring and all that sort of stuff with, with the Game of Thrones guy. And while I was over there, I really realised that I was with my dad and with my mate Spence and I felt like I do not want to be involved in boxing. This is it. So I phoned up Mauricio Suleiman, sent him a nice message and he FaceTimed me and he said, My dear champion, this is fantastic. You're going out on top as a champion. I I, um, support anything you want to do. And I officially retired. I vacated the Ring Magazine belt. I officially vacated the WBC belt. The next thing I know, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in the pub having a beer. Um, sees it all come across the TV screens in Iceland, heavyweight champion of the world retires. Everyone's congratulating me. And I'm thinking, what the fuck have I just done? I felt like emptiness of being mentally unwell again. I felt down. I felt depressed. This is not the beer. I only had one beer at this moment. And even before I even went to the pub, I was sat outside on a bench with my dad's bench thinking like, finally now, this is it. And I was down again. I was already depressed. I was depressed straight away. So this is
0: the Klitschko moment mark two then, isn't it? You scaled that mountain and saw the emptiness on the other side.
1: Yeah. And here I am retiring Mm. again. And you see the emptiness. And there it is, empty and hollow again. I'm sat there thinking, what now? And I come back home and I was home for two weeks. And every day that pa- that came, that two weeks, I was down and it was a grey day. And I couldn't shake it. And I was going to the gym, I was lifting weights, I was doing a run, and it wasn't it wasn't doing anything for me for the first time in years. And then as soon as I made up my mind I'm going to come back and fight Usek or Joshua, then I feel great again. Mm. I think you're less addicted to boxing and more. You can't allow
0: yourself to go where you were when you were sitting in your sports car that day or when you were in, that's, I think, I think that's what's happening here. And the only way that you will ever be able to walk away from boxing is if you can be mentally happy, not being a boxer. If you know, we spoke at the very start of this conversation. Yeah. Tyson Fury is this person. The gypsy king is the, is the guy in the, in the boxing ring. I think we've probably ended it by realizing that to the public, they're two people for you they're exactly the same person and you have to be able to remove the Gypsy King from your life. Yeah.
1: to be, Let him go forever.
0: Let him go forever and to, and to realize that Tyson Fury is not weak because he had mental health problems. He's strong because he got through them. He's not lacking focus in his life because he's got numerous children and a wife that loves him. Yeah. He isn't lacking support because he's got an amazing network around him and he still mates with the people he was at school with. Somehow you've got to realize that you are way stronger then you are weaker. And the fact you've been through a mental health struggle shows how strong you are. And if you can get there, I think you can sit on the sofa with Paris, you can watch someone else have a world heavyweight fight, and you can smile, knowing that very few people have walked on this earth and achieved what you've achieved. That's very, very
1: good assessment of it. And if I could do that, that'd be like, fantastic. You might be able to, though. Don't think you can't. Look what you've done with your life. I understand all that. But what made me better and well again was this, what I'm doing today. And all the time that I wasn't doing this, I was sad. And I sit Mm. here today, I'm fit and healthy and, and everything's great. I still have my days. The Hotel California song, you can check out anytime you want, but you can never leave. Can I ever leave? We can check out, get well, okay. You're going to come back. I'll see you in in a bit, Mosh. He'll be back. And I face this all the time. And every time I walk away from boxing, back in the hotel California. And I'm really afraid of what's
0: coming. Are you still having treatment? Are you still seeing psychiatrists?
1: No. No, I'm not seeing anybody. But odd days I feel up and down. But most days, like I say, I've got this little method What I do short-term goals, set myself a weight target, make sure I I train twice a day. I bet you there's a person
0: on this earth, if you went and found them, that could work with you and solve this problem in exactly the same way that you couldn't be a professional boxer for 20 years without a coach. You need to find the coach for the next part of your life. And they are there.
1: 100% there's, there's help out there. Like I said, I've just got to seek it out like I did before. And you say keep busy with other stuff... I'm the most busiest person on the planet at the moment. I've signed up to like 60 tour dates from down the country. I've had to cancel like the 20 of them because I'm supposed to be going back into camp. I'm singing a song. I'm writing me third book. I'm doing a 10 part Netflix documentary with an option to do another two seasons mm. if I want to. How much stuff can I do to keep busy? Again, as I'm listening to it, you're the economic
3: engine for lots of other people that are not going to say to you, knock it on the head, yeah. look after yourself. I'm worried about you in 20 years' time, not you in two years' yeah, time. Yeah, I know what you're saying, yeah. How many people are around you that, are actually, that actually would go against their own economic advantage and say to you, just go and live a happy life, we'll find a way, go, like go and get that treatment that is going to help you uncouple the Gypsy King from Tyson Fury versus go and do that documentary. Come on, I've, I'm going to promote you on the tour. I've got a new book for you to sell. Yeah. That It sounds to me like, I've seen it, like you know, in terms of growing up in that world. Yeah. I always think that on your way up, nobody wants to know you. Then you hit a peak level of fame yeah. and then everybody wants to know you. And
1: on your way down, nobody wants to know you.
3: And, every, and nobody wants to know you again. So at the minute, you're at that stage where everyone wants to know you because there's, a, there's an advantage to knowing you. But yeah. there's nobody actually saying to you. But will those same people want to know you in 25 years? It'll be Paris and it'll be
1: the people around you 100% that are true. actually saying to you. I, like, like he said before, I don't have a big crew of people. I have the same people today around me that I had when I first started boxing. And they'll still be there in 20 years' time, I've no doubt. Exactly. So what are they saying to you? They said to me, forget about boxing, walk away. Right done what you've done, you don't need anything else now, get out of it. And it's it's mainly just me. And it's my mood changes and, and change my mind every two minutes. I mean, very indecisive. Sure.
3: But there's a, there's also that other siren call on your other shoulder, people going, stay in it, because you're relevant at the minute. Yeah. You Netflix are not coming to you when you're long retired and you've not got that title. Do you see what I mean? It's of course,
1: net- yeah. But while while they're hot, they're trying to get everything in, aren't they? Yeah. But no, you've made a very valid point. Like there's always been though. I don't think I can retire today. Cause I need that Joshua fight. We have been trying to make that fight for years. Right? Why do you need that fight? Because it's like it's the fight that people want to see. It's the fight that I want to see but, as a boxing but then fan.
0: There'll be, oh, I need Joshua too. Because I the result he wasn't happy with or I wasn't happy with it. I just fear there'll always be an Anthony Joshua. I've already said that.
1: Like the the Roman general said, and we beat everybody now. He said, yep, there'll always be somebody else. In the beginning of the Gladiator movie. Yeah. Remember it? Yeah, yeah. Where he goes, we've conquered the world. And he goes, there'll always be somebody else to fight. There'll always be another war. Yeah. And there's going to be somebody else. Like before, for the last four or five years, there's been this three-headed monster, me, Wilder, Joshua. Joshua and Wilder have been slain and I'm the last one standing. All of a sudden, you've got some new people coming up now. You've got Joe Joyce coming, Daniel Dubois, Usec's gate gatecrashed the party. Yep. So now there's a, there's a load of new blood that wasn't there five years ago. And it's like, well, can you meet this person? Can you meet that person? But I think it would be an absolute dying travesty if me and Joshua didn't fight in this era we've already seen big heavyweights that didn't fight before, like Mike Tyson versus Riddick Bowe, uh, Lennox Lewis and Bowe. Um, We didn't see the junior a Ricky Hatton fight. We didn't see Carl Froch versus uh, Joe Carl There's been so many good fights that we didn't get to see. And looking back on them now, like does anyone really care that you didn't see them? But it seems so important to me now living in the moment.
0: We're pretty much out of time. But what I would say is for you to come and, Talk like this and share this with us um, in the way you have will do so much for people that are struggling in a yeah. place where you were. And what I would finally say is, we're both boxing fans, right? There's nothing on the earth that we would love to see more than Tyson Fury and Anthony Joshua. But above all of that, there's nothing I'd like to see more than that. Than at the end of that fight, I read somewhere that you found the serenity to walk away from boxing. So, yeah. you know, please speak to people. Look for those answers. They're not within you, and they're probably not within the immediate circle around you. Yeah. Right? They are almost certainly the answer to your problem is with someone you've never met in your life.
1: Well, boys, it's been a
0: fascinating, very
1: uh, interesting. Hour How was it or so. for you? It's been good. You know, it's been up and down, round and round and round. It's been a typical Tyson Fury moment, I believe. But like I say, things like this, like you've just said there. They will. People will watch this and people who are probably unwell and whatever they can take from it, positive, might help them in their life, might just save someone's life.
3: So in the spirit of high performance and Tyson, give us feedback. So on a scale of 1 to 10, what would you score it? And 10 isn't an option. And then give us feedback on what we could have done better as interviewers.
1: I think that this was one of the best um, podcasts I've done. Um, I've not done that many. I only do select... Podcasts. This has been probably the most in depth, and the pros you've took me to the darkest places that I probably never spoke about before. Never spoke about my dead sister before. I've never spoke about all stuff going on with Paris and, and my uncle Huey in the hospital. I may have touched on that, but not in depth. I think we've gone took me to hell and back in this interview. Brought back up all these memories, and I can see her now smile at the end of it, thinking like that's in the past, and I hope I never go back there again. And I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure that I don't go back there again.
3: So what could we do better as interviewers? Give us feedback. I,
1: I think you guys were bang on, to be fair. You didn't, uh, you just let, you just prompted the questions, let the, let me speak and talk about it, basically. And it, I thought it was a fantastic um, interview. Thank you for sharing. So I, I've watched this, you you guys before, and you, you always say like, what three things I'm gonna ask you that. In a minute. Oh God! Yeah. <laughs> <I> thought, <laughs> come, come on, then. Yeah. What are they then? Yeah.
0: Your three non-negotiable behaviours that you and the people around you have to buy into.
1: Well, my three nego- non-negotiable behaviours, or three things that makes me high performance, is fish fingers, chips and beans. <laughs> <laughs> that we've never had before. Go on, explain that. Fish fingers, chips and beans. It's me <laughs> row meal, and that's what makes me high performance. It needs no more explanation. I have it me. before every before fight. fight and that's what makes me high performance. Is that what you had even when
3: you was a kid? for your first amateur fight? it's yes, my favourite, favourite, mm-hmm.
1: favourite meal in the world. You can go to all the big fancy restaurants in the world. Have you ever asked for it in a big fancy restaurant? Of course I have. Don't, don't you get it. Obviously. Yes.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Obviously. So what was the first time you asked it in a posh restaurant when you thought that's heavyweight champion of the world status, that when they did it without...
1: I was in America in a big fancy restaurant in New York. Yeah. And everyone was having lobsters and all this fancy truffle and whatever else, all these fancy fish things that I can't even name. And I don't even like any of this like seafood and all that. I'm not a seafood person. So I said, Oh, I know. She said, Well what 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 can we make? You've got a chef we can make anything you want. Like I said, will tell you what, I'll have fish fingers, chips and beans. And she's like, like, Beans? Like green beans? I'm like, No, um like breakfast beans. And she's like, What is this? Because <laughs> they don't have beans for breakfast, do they, in America? It's beans, yeah. And uh, so I got a picture up and she's like, oh, like, barbecue beans. Because they have with, like, barbecue yeah, yeah. stuff. Like, yep, that's what I want. Fish fingers, not crisps. I want, like, chunky fries. Yeah. And... Beans. Barbecue beans. Barbecue yeah. beans.
3: No, that's power. What advice would you give to a teenage Tyson just starting out?
1: Be prepared for a whirlwind of a roller coaster life coming up.
3: What is your biggest strength? What is your greatest weakness?
1: My biggest strength is my ability to overcome problems. And my biggest weakness is not knowing what to do when it's when I should. If you could go back to one moment of your life, what would it be and why? It would probably be the moment that me and Paris had Beneath the Trees in 2006. We are having a picnic. I was an amateur boxer, and I told her I was going to marry her after going out with her for about three months. And I told her I was going to be every title I ever won. I named him all off. And I told her that I was going to marry her, and we were going to have kids, and I was going to be heavyweight champion of the world. And it was one of those epic moments in my life that I would relive it.
0: And finally, this is your kind of departing message, really, for the people that have listened to this podcast, um, what you'd love to leave them thinking about. And it's your one golden rule to living a high-performance life.
1: The golden rule for me would be follow your heart and follow your dreams because you never know where it might take you. And never listen to all the naysayers and all the dream crushers because along the journey that I've had, I've had so many people telling me that I can't do this and won't do that and won't, won't be possible and I didn't believe any of them and I made it to the top anyway. So, if you follow your dream and you've got a goal, probably going to reach it. Damien. Jake.
0: I mean, um, I don't know where we begin sort of discussing what we've just heard there from Tyson Fury. I think the biggest thing from my perspective is that I, ju- I just think it's absolutely heartbreaking.
3: Yes, yeah, I think it's that old Icarus story about flying close to close to the sun, you know, can often singe your wings and I think we've had an insight there of how he had his ambition to get to the top of the world as a heavyweight champion, and achieved it. And mm. it's that old saying that the view wasn't worth the climb.
0: And you know, I, I think I'm guilty of seeing the world too simply. I think like a lot of people, I went, oh, Tyson Fury had mental health problems and put loads of weight on. But then he lost the weight and fought again, he must be better. And actually, as he, de- he described himself to us as a mental health patient, and you could see that the man in front of us is, is struggling on a daily basis. And, you know, there are many people listening to this who would dream of being heavyweight champion of the world. I would not want to be the heavyweight champion of the world one of the most famous people on the planet,
3: lauded, successful, rich, and struggling with the demons that he's struggling with. Yeah, and again, if there's one theme that comes so frequently up on this podcast is the stuff that goes on in the shadows, the sacrifice, the cost of high performance is something that when we can appreciate it and understand it and hear it so vividly as Tyson presented, it makes us... or I hope it helps people almost redefine their own definition of high performance. It's got to be on their terms, not on some extrinsic motivation, the baubles, the bank account, the the successes, because the cost of that might not be for everybody. And, you know, I know that Tyson has his detractors.
0: He's made mistakes over the years. Like Like everyone, he's flawed. But I really want people to understand, really, from that conversation that... You know, there is a reason people do things and say things and act in certain ways. And again, if we can try and not excuse that behaviour but put compassion at the forefront and realise that, like, it's very hard to see a positive ending for Tyson Fury because if he keeps fighting, it's going to damage him physically. If he stops fighting, it's going to damage him mentally. And I don't know... I don't know how this story ends, but I, I, I genuinely, I, I worry for him. Yeah, me too.
3: I, I mean... My dad used to say to young boxers when they started their careers, he'd say, Have a look in the mirror and you should be unmarked and that should be the same features, the unmarked features when you when you leave the sport, that if you're going in and you're taking physical punishment, you're already starting to lose. Doesn't matter what the scorecard says. You know, you should be able to leave it with your health intact and hopefully made a few quid along the way. And when I hear Tyson described after that the Deontay Wilder fight coming out and not being able to remember where he was, the hotel he was in. The alarm bells ring for me, and I just hope he's got the people alongside him that can eventually get the message through, like Paris's wife. That that they're the ones that are still going to be in his corner in twenty years' time, looking after him. The people that are that are currently surrounding him, that have got financial involvement, whether it's TV programs, records, book deals they're not going to be there in 20 years time when the circus rolls on. And I think he needs to listen to those that love him and have his care at the forefront of their mind to maybe consider getting help to move on to the third chapter of his life.
0: Yeah. Well said. I couldn't agree more. And I, I do know one thing though, um, what he shared with us today will have a positive impact for so many people. And he deserves a lot of credit for not hiding, not shying away, not being silent, but being a true ambassador in the best possible way for, for mental health.
3: Yeah, and, you know, I, as we were talking to him, I can hear people going, you didn't ask him about that drug ban, you didn't ask him about some of his more wilder comments or homophobia or some of the sexism, but I'd say there's stuff that came from a place when, by his own admission, he was pretty poorly. And I don't think the value of exploring those comments there would have offered as much value for listeners as trying to understand the profound impacts of mental health challenges and how to overcome them. Thanks, mate.
0: Time to meet another high performance guest. Welcome to High Performance, Abby Tester, one of our listeners. Um, Abby, thank you very much for taking the time. You've just told us before we hit record, you're excited to be talking to us. Why would that be?
4: Um, I discovered you guys, obviously I knew of both of you, but I discovered the high performance podcast a few months ago and I've just soaked it all up since, since then it's, yeah, it's just done a lot for me and I love the conversations. And actually when I listen to you guys, I'm, especially if I'm on a journey, my um, brain keeps going with that conversation or it just puts me in a really good frame of mind.
3: So which was the first uh, podcast that you listened to then,
4: Abby Rick Lewis. That was a really good one. Why is that? He was really good because I think he said something like, no holes, no assholes, no holes because it was someone else that said.
0: <laughs> yeah. So it was, um, it was Holly Tucker who said she'd rather have a hole than an asshole. In her business, and then and then Rick took it on further. And I, So why why is that helpful for you? Rather have a hole than an arsehole in your business or because, your
4: Because yeah, well, I think well, both. I think in my life, um, you know, I've had friendships or people in my life that have been there a long time. And I think we grow and we change. And um I'd rather have that gap. I'd rather be by myself or with someone and alone, that sort of cliched a bit, really, isn't it? And then I think in the workplace, I have seen it where having someone is more damaging than having the whole itself.
3: So, what other episodes then, Abby, have you listened to that have really resonated?
4: Roxy Nafusi, um, Lando loved the Lando one. Love a bit of F one, and what a great guy he is. Erwin Kane, and I think the reason. I love this podcast so much is it helps me raise my kids. You know, I've got an adult child <laughs> um, kind of, <clears throat> and I've got a teenage daughter and you guys remind me, I don't want to protect Fleur and that's my daughter. She's 17. I don't want to protect her. I want her to live and exist and listening to the podcast just helps me. I think Owen O'Kane was talking about the fact that we worry about so much in our lives and 90% of it doesn't happen. And that's the message that I go to my daughter with, that actually stuff's going to happen, shit's going to happen. And you just need to live your life and be, and it's accepting that emotion. I remember Rick also talking about um, someone supporting you, but not being a blocker and not holding you back. And that stayed with me as well. So, as an as a HR person, and with my children, I never want to hold them back. It's the roots and wings thing, isn't it?
0: Yeah, it's so nice. And do you know what I love about this as well is you've you've named such diverse people. You know, Owen O'Kane, a psychotherapist and then Rick Lewis, a billionaire businessman, and then Roxy Fousey, a manifesto, and Lando Norris, a Formula One driver. And I really want people who are listening to this conversation, Abby, to understand that they might come to High Performance for the sports people, or for the mindset conversations, or for the business advice. But actually, sometimes going places that you don't expect to be inspired is actually where some of the magic, I think, lies with this podcast.
4: Yeah, I really agree. And actually, I listened most recently to uh Danny Cipriani and I kind of started that and I and I you do you go in with preconceptions I think you sometimes talk about it actually where um you're just not sure what you're going to get from that conversation and the I think the vulnerability of that conversation has just stayed with me really
0: amazing to hear these kind of real life testimonies of of what our guests have done for you is is amazing so thank you so much
4: thanks guys take care
0: and that's it look can i just remind you that you can also watch these episodes on youtube and actually this particular one is worth seeing you get a real depth when you see the look on Tyson's face when he's talking about the challenges that he awaits. And I, I just want to say again, thank you so much to Tyson Fury for having the bravery to come on this platform and talk in the way he has. Because I know it's going to help so many people. You can get hold of his new autobiography, Gloves Off, by clicking the link in the description to this podcast. But I really hope that that was an episode that helps you. If you need it, as always, huge thanks goes to you for growing and sharing this podcast among your community. Last week, more people listened to the High Performance Podcast in one week than have ever done. So please continue to spread the learnings you're taking from this series. Thanks so much to the whole team. And remember, there is no secret. It is all there for you. So chase world-class basics. Don't get high on your own supply. Remain humble, curious, and empathetic. And we'll see you very soon. Bye-bye.